when we see all those kids, all those precious children, and it seems like there's more of them every Sunday at the front of church, I hope we're also reminded to be praying for our children's church workers, because that is an incredibly important ministry in our church, as, uh, just as important as, as we hear with the sermon upstairs, uh, the children being taught downstairs is vital. And let's remember them in our prayers, and I know as well that Amy's always looking for those who are willing to, to give of their time to help with the kids downstairs, and if, if that's something that might interest you, talk to Amy. I know she would love to hear from you. There's always more, more volunteers needed. We're in the season of Lent, and so I wanted to begin to turn our, our hearts collectively towards the cross, and looking ahead to Easter our victory over death and sin in the grave through what Jesus has done for us. And so today we're going to look at a very familiar story, usually reserved for Palm Sunday, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of, ahead of things, because I want to look at a little different angle of this story than maybe we typically focus on. And so I hope that it's something that will catch our attention this morning and speak to us. So I would ask if you would bow with me once more. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive, and it is active, it is powerful, and it is always ready to speak to us by your Spirit. And so I pray that today, again, by your Spirit, you would help us set aside distractions of the day. Help us to set aside all those cluttered thoughts we brought with us this morning. Um, Thoughts of what we're going to do this afternoon or have to do this week. I just pray that this next few minutes, you would really help us to focus in on what you have for us. And I'd, I don't know exactly where this is going to land with each person this morning, where each situation is coming from, but I know that you do, and I pray that you would translate this word this morning to each situation, that there could be a word of, of encouragement, a word of challenge, and something, Lord, that would stir us to further obedience towards you. For you love us so much. Thank you for your great love. Speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Begin this morning with a story, an obscure story, maybe some of you have heard before, but most likely have not. It's a story that took place way back in the 1972 presidential primary race in the United States. A man by the name of Edmund Muskie seemed well on his way to becoming the Democrats' nominee for president of that year of 1972. However, Edmund Muskie, the Manchester Union labor leader, published what came to be known as the Canuck Letter. This infamous Canuck Letter, which stated that Muskie had made disparaging remarks about Canadians and that his wife Jane was a heavy drinker and used filthy language during the campaign. In response to this, in an emotional speech given during a snowstorm, no less, Muskie shed tears on national television. And through sobs, he defended his wife and her honor and that she was not any of the things that had been said about her. And those tears became his downfall because viewers who watched his impassioned speech that night night, believed his former reputation of being a calm, cool, and collected customer, someone above emotions. This was shattered forever. Tears, the voters believed, were a sign of weakness for someone aspiring to be the President of the United States. And so he failed to secure the nomination. Now, each one of us is personally, intimately familiar with tears. And the reason for that is because whether we care to admit it or not, we have all cried. 
And yes, I know that the men here this morning say, but not me. I'm tough. I'm a macho man. I do not cry. I don't care how tough you are. You have cried because you've watched Old Yaller, right? (laughs) Who here hasn't... Okay, if you haven't seen Old Yaller, the family dog dies, it gets put down. Or if you've seen another tearjerker movie like Marley and Me... You know, or if it wasn't from watching a movie, your own family dog died, and I don't care how tough you are, you shed a tear. And if perhaps not then, maybe it was when you held your your newborn child for the first time. Or maybe it's when your brand new truck got its first scratch on the side. (laughs) At some time or another, you have shed a tear. And if none of those things did it, there's always chopping onions to do the trick. But now, though we are all personally familiar with tears, we've all shed tears, we've all wept before, and we're all capable of crying to varying degrees. Some, it comes very easily, and for others, you know, it it takes a lot. But what I really want to focus our attention in on this morning is the question. What are the things that move us to tears? What are the things that trigger that deep emotion within us? And then the second question is, are the things that move you to tears the same things that would move Jesus to tears? Because you see, while we're all capable of crying, we're all capable of shedding tears, what moves us to tears says a lot about us. Because you see, our tears can be selfish or they can be selfless. We can cry for ourselves or we can cry for others. You see, believe it or not, tears are a daily and often hourly and sometimes down to the minute an occurrence in our household. Now, if this comes as a surprise to any of you, you don't have toddlers in your own house. But let me just say, you have never experienced true grief, you know, that kind that causes, you know, the heart to race, spine tingling shivers throughout the body. You've never experienced this until you have heard the raw, heart-rending, and ear-piercing wail of a three-year-old who has just had his favorite Hot Wheels car ripped from his grasp by his older brother. If you have heard this sound, it is the picture of grief. And if you don't think it's real, the waterworks of giant tears rolling down his face, enough to to soak a t-shirt, This would tell you otherwise, because believe me, for a three-year-old, the emotion is real, the tears are real, and yes, they are entirely selfish. Their tears and their grief are for themselves. And you see, if we want to grow up, not only physically, but spiritually, then we must have our hearts transformed in such a way That rather than our emotions only being attuned to our own selfish desires, that instead we become more like Jesus and have our emotions attuned to the well-being of others. That we would move from being selfish to selfless. And so for the purpose of self-evaluation this morning, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I moved to tears by the same things that moved Jesus to tears? Do I cry about the same things that he cried about? Now, of course, before we can properly answer that question this morning, we first need to know what caused Jesus to cry. Now, there are only two recorded incidents in Scripture where Jesus cried. 
The first and most famous for the simple fact that it is the shortest verse in the Bible, one that chances are all of you have memorized. It's two words. What is it? That's right. Ah, I'm glad to know we've got some memorizers in our congregation. John 11.35 records that when standing outside of the tomb of his good friend who had, just, who had just passed away four days earlier, of course Lazarus, Jesus stood outside, he saw the tears of Mary and Martha, he saw the grief of the crowd, and of course he deeply loved Lazarus. It was his good friend whose tomb he stood outside, and there, moved by all of this, Jesus wept. Now, of course, there are likely a combination of deep reasons for why Jesus wept outside of his dead friend's tomb. But the straightforward understanding of the people that saw his tears that day was simple. Their response in the very next verse was, See how he loved him. It was simple, beautiful, straightforward. Jesus loved Lazarus, and so he wept. See how he loved him. You see, Jesus, while fully God, was also fully man. And in that moment, he experienced the same emotions as us. And stirred up from a wellspring of love for his friend, Jesus wept. And so when scripture says that he suffered in every way as we do, when sudden tears spring up to our eyes because the death of someone you love, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He was there himself. He identifies with us in what it is to be human. He weeps with us in these times of loss. But then, and don't miss this, he weeps with us, but then he comforts us with living hope that just as Lazarus was resurrected by the power of God through faith in Jesus, so too our loved ones will be resurrected with him. And one day there will be a great reunion. This is the first incident where Jesus cried, and I believe that this shows for us that in times of loss and grief, it is okay to cry. In fact, it is good. It is healing. And when we cry for those who have also lost loved ones, it is a way that we comfort them in our empathy and in our concern. But now I want to focus in on the second recorded incident of Jesus weeping in Luke chapter 19. If you turn to Luke chapter 19 uh, with me this morning, if you have your Bibles We're going to spend the remainder of our time there in this passage. Henry read it for us earlier. It's a familiar story, uh, a tale that we're all probably uh, going to rehearse again in a couple of weeks. It happened along the triumphal march into Jerusalem on what became known as Palm Sunday. We pick up the story in Luke chapter 19 and verse 28. When Jesus begins this narrative by sending two of his disciples to fetch a donkey colt for him to ride, setting the stage for his grand entrance with a direct fulfillment of a 500-year-old prophecy concerning the Jewish Messiah. And now here, to give us a bit of a backdrop for this, I want to show you some of the pictures that we took when we were in Israel on this exact same ground. Uh, The first picture I want to show you is of us descending down off of the Mount of Olives, and This is not the exact location necessarily, but it's along this route. We're descending down off the Mount of Olives. You can see how steep it is. Of course, the pavement and the walls are not the same as were there in Jesus' time. Certainly the buses, I don't think, were there in Jesus' day. But still, this is the ground or or the vicinity where these events took place on. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet had declared this prophecy concerning the Messiah. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, when Jesus sent his disciples to bring this donkey colt and to ride it down the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem, this might seem just a little bit obscure to us that this would be connected to a 500-year-old prophecy. But for the Jewish religious leaders of that day who knew these prophecies by heart, as well as the Jewish pilgrims who were faithfully making their way to Jerusalem that day for the Passover celebration that was about to begin, Jesus riding down that hill on the back of a donkey colt had the same effect as if he had been flashing a giant neon sign stating in big bold letters, I am your Messiah. That is the effect that it had on the people that day. They knew the prophecy, and to see Jesus, of all people, riding a donkey colt, was advertising his credentials, who he was. He was declaring, I am your king, I am your Messiah, there could be no mistake. And so we see that this is the effect it has on the people. They begin bursting into songs of Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. And then they begin lying their coats on the road for him to ride over as though he is royalty, as though he is a king, lying out a carpet for him to to walk in on, to ride in on. And it was as if in this moment the Jewish people are collectively saying, finally, at long last, Jesus is going to take the throne of Israel as king. And as this is happening, it was in almost every sense Jesus' coronation parade. And for the faithful Jewish pilgrims, and undoubtedly for Jesus' disciples that day, it was a day of joy and of just giddy excitement. It's very likely that among the crowd that day would have been people that at some point Jesus had healed. Many others who had been among the thousands On the hillside that day when he had multiplied the loaves and the fishes, they had ate the food that day that he had broken off and multiplied. They had experienced his miracles firsthand. In fact, Luke records that there were those who began praising God for all of the miracles that they had seen. And they had undoubtedly listened to him teach as he spoke with authority. All of these people, the vast majority of them, had in some way been touched by Jesus. And their lives had been changed for the better. And so now as Jesus rides down this Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem, and and the temple is towering before him across the Kidron Valley, the, the beauty of it is something that today we can't hardly even imagine. It was so breathtaking, the scene of this beautiful temple towering before them. And as word spreads and the adoring crowds keep growing along this impromptu parade route, the air is just alive with excitement. And we're we're not told exactly which disciples started this song, but one of them began bursting forth with just spontaneous joy. And verses 37 and 38 tell us what they sang. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Now this morning we had some pretty good hymn singing going on. Vern was really coaxing it out of us, which is great. We're going to have some more hymn singing going on this afternoon. But can you imagine the hymn sing of that day? Listen to the description. The whole crowd begins joyfully praising God, not softly, not subdued, in loud voices. They are belting it out. Everyone across the entire countryside can hear this joyful parade. And now we need to remember that also lurking amongst the crowd that day were sinister faces with hard hearts and squinty eyes, Pharisees, the religious leaders, always waiting for Jesus to say one wrong word or make one mistake that they could pounce upon. And so when they heard the disciples loudly proclaim these words, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, well, they just couldn't take it anymore. They just couldn't stand it. And in verse 39, amidst the sounds of jubilation and singing, we hear their critical growls. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Silence them. It begs the question, why? Why were the Pharisees so angry? Why would they want Jesus to silence his disciples' song? And the first and most obvious reason is that they recognized that Jesus was on the cusp of complete national recognition as being the Jewish Messiah. You see, up until then, it had only been individuals and small groups of people that believed Jesus to be their Messiah. But now they could see that the masses were proclaiming it. And the Pharisees knew that if Jesus rode into Jerusalem and the masses proclaimed him as the Jewish Messiah, a popular uprising could take place very quickly. And they knew that if this took place, their religious authority and power would quickly slip from their grasp. And these men, above all else, were worried about their own position and their own power. And in verse 40, we see Jesus reply to their rebuke, to silence his disciples' song, he replies to them like this, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. What a statement. We can see along this roadway, even though it's not the exact replica of what Jesus rode down that day, stones are everywhere in Israel. The road would have been paved with stones. There would have been boulders along the side. The stones are everywhere. And picking the most common subject around, Jesus could have picked anything. He could have picked the birds in the sky, the grass, the trees. But instead, he chose stones because they were literally everywhere. If the people are silent, the stones would cry out. In other words, Jesus is saying that what is happening here is so momentous that it must be proclaimed. There can be no silence for what is happening here. As G. Campbell Morgan writes, Jesus said, in effect, rebuke them. The thing happening is so great that that if there are no human voices, the stones will become vocal. The stones themselves will cry out. We can't miss what's happening here. All of history is culminating in this moment. God's plan since before the foundation of the world and all that the prophets had foretold was finally going to be fulfilled in Jesus as the spotless Lamb of God who would take upon himself the sin of the world. 
And so of all of the options that day, silence was not one of them. For if no human voices sang, then creation itself, that had come to be at the sound of its master's voice, would pick up the course, and they would sing out his praise. And so at Jesus' words, it must have seemed to his disciples that not even the critical Pharisees could spoil the joy of that day. Everything was going their way. Everything was good. Everything was upbeat. It was a matter of celebration. It was a party. But then in this setting, something entirely unexpected happens. Jesus stops. Jesus stops. The procession stops. And then he does something entirely unexpected. He begins to weep. Jesus' disciples must have been shocked by this behavior. Like someone crying at their own birthday party. It just doesn't fit. Why would you cry at something that's about you? It's your parade, Jesus. Everything is finally going our way. His tears are unexpected and out of place. And so it begs the question, at the head of his own parade, why? Why was Jesus crying? It was what before him, it was what was before him. What Jesus saw lying across the Kidron Valley that triggered his tears. And you'll see in the next picture just a small glimpse of what he would have seen that day as Jesus stopped and he looked out across the valley and he saw the temple and he saw Jerusalem. He began to weep. And here in this picture you can see in the middle of the foreground there, there's the wall, the old wall that's, that's been rebuilt. It's not the wall that was there because that was destroyed. But where the Dome of the Rock stands today is likely the vicinity of where the great temple of Herod stood. And as Jesus looks across at Jerusalem, he knows what is going to happen. Because unlike the disciples that day who thought that there was a coronation going to take place, a crown lying ahead of them, Jesus knew differently. Jesus knew differently, and he weeps for Jerusalem. And we read what he says to them in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it, and he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You see, unlike the disciples of Jesus' day, we know that directly before Jesus did not lie a royal throne, but a criminal's cross. And rather than a crown of gold upon his head, he would receive a crown of thorns. And that the cheers of Hosanna would soon become chants of crucify him, crucify him. And even more, he who knew no sin would become sin for us. And he would take the sin of the world upon his own shoulders. And he would know separation from his father for the first time as his father turned his face away from his son's suffering on that cross. All of this so that we could be made right with God. 
But even knowing all of this, knowing what truly lie ahead of him, unlike the disciples who were rejoicing that day, even knowing all of that, Jesus weeps, but his tears are not for his own suffering. His tears were not for what he was about to endure. No, he wept his tears for Jerusalem. His tears were for the suffering that would soon befall Zion because of her religious leader's willful rejection of him as their Messiah. As John said in chapter 1 of his gospel, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. These were God's chosen people, the ones he had led out of Egypt with a mighty hand through the Red Sea, across the wilderness, and into the Promised Land. But now they, God's own children, did not recognize their own God and Messiah when he walked shoulder to shoulder amongst them. And so rather than ushering God's kingdom on earth, they were about to usher God's judgment upon their own heads. And in that moment, as Jesus looked out over right then beautiful, spotless, shimmering Jerusalem, the glorious temple before him, in his mind's eye, Jesus foresaw and then foretold what history records happened exactly 40 years later. Fed up with Israel's continuous rebellions, the Roman army led by General Titus surrounded the holy city, besieging it with siege engines and ramparts the inhabitants within slowly but steadily starving to death. With nowhere to bury them, the dead bodies filled the streets, the blood running in the gutters, and the stench filling the air as hundreds of thousands of people cried out to God for deliverance. But this time there would be none. And then finally the walls were breached, the defenses overrun, and those still alive were put to death by the sword or by fire or worse. And then the final act of desecration, as Jesus foretold, stone by stone, the majestic temple is destroyed, the city burned, and then systematically razed to the ground. The earth itself salted so that it could never again produce crops. The historian Josephus records that the fires burned so hot that the gold in the temple melted running down below the rocks, and so this inspired the greedy soldiers to be extra diligent in fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. For in order to reclaim the gold, they would turn up every last stone, not one left standing upon another. And with the capital destroyed, the surviving Jews were then dispersed to the nations, the great diaspora. And for 1,900 years, wherever they went... The Jewish people were the pariah. They were tolerated, but in many ways they were persecuted. And of course, this all culminated in the great holocaust of World War II. We see this great judgment brought upon their heads because of their rejection of their own God and Messiah. And foreseeing all of this, Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and he wept. As W.H. Griffith Thomas said, Let us not dismiss the tears of Christ easily. Let us sit at Christ's feet until we learn the secret of his tears and behold the sins and sorrows of city and countryside and then learn to weep over them as well. 
Both Matthew and Luke tell on another occasion that as Jesus looked down upon the city of Jerusalem, he had cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing, and now your house is left to you desolate. And on the side of Mount of Olives, just back from where this picture was taken, stands a chapel. You'll see it in the next picture. This little chapel is called Dominus Flevit. In the Latin, it's directly translated as meaning the Lord wept. And this chapel, the the shape of it was fashioned in the shape of a teardrop to symbolize the tears of Jesus as on this location, he wept over Jerusalem. And inside on the altar of this very chapel is a painting of a mother hen with her chicks under her wings. And I took a picture of that with my own camera. It's a little bit foggy, but you can see it there. And the verse in the Latin inscription around it is this very passage of how I long to gather you under my wings. But you would not. And so Jesus weeps over those who he came to save because he knows he cannot force them to be saved. He would love to gather them under his wings, but they, the chicks, must be willing. And Jesus' love for Jerusalem is so great that his heart breaks for them. And as I look at this story, I wonder. I sat in my office yesterday and I wondered. And I'll wonder it aloud again today. That even as Jesus, at this very moment, sits upon his great throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and as he considers this world, and as he looks down at it with all of the nations and all of the people, those who he willingly gave his life to save, and he sees how in so many ways and in so many places the people of this world are willfully rejecting him, just as Jerusalem did. And so I wonder. I know it's heaven. But are there still times that Jesus weeps? Does he still look at this world that he loves so deeply and see us in our lostness and in our rebellion and in our turning away from him? And is it possible that on his throne in heaven he would weep over us And so I ask again, as I did at the outset, am I moved to tears by the same things that moves Jesus to tears? Does the lost condition of so many in our world and in our nation and in our own community, does it bother me? Does it concern me? For just as surely as Jesus foresaw the coming judgment of Jerusalem, the Apostle John foresaw a great judgment that is coming to our world just as certainly as God cannot lie. And all those who are not under the blood of the Lamb, not under the blood of Jesus Christ, just as certainly as the angel of death struck down every firstborn son of Egypt, they will be struck down. And just as then, it didn't matter whether they were particularly good or nice. Just as today, it doesn't matter whether someone is particularly polite or respectable or good. God's judgment on the world and on all those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, his son, his salvation, it is coming. God has foretold it. And just as the destruction of Jerusalem came to pass, these words too will come to pass. 
And so in my mind's eye, as I stand beside Jesus looking out over Jerusalem, do I see what he sees? Do I see people that he loves so much that he willingly died for them? And finally, do I care where they are going when they die? Does it move me to tears that there are those who I will not see in heaven someday? I was 17 years old working at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp when one night looking up at the stars, I just felt the Holy Spirit whispering to me that I needed to ask for something from God. And what it was kind of surprised me. And what it was was to ask him for a burden for the lost. Not something that I thought a typical 17-year-old should be asking for, but I thought, sure, why not? I'll ask for a burden for the lost. And so I prayed the prayer. And it didn't happen overnight, but from that night forward, something changed in me. And even that summer, as I worked with different kids, the ones who were the most problematic, the ones who had the most behavior issues that just would get on my nerves and irritate me the most, suddenly I began to feel something different towards them, and soon I realized it was compassion. Soon I realized I actually felt mercy for these kids. I felt even love for the ones who were getting on my nerves. And I realized that God was answering this prayer, that I was burdened for these kids. And when I would send them home, knowing that they were going to a terrible situation, it would bother me, and I would weep for these kids sometimes. It just began to eat me up inside, and I said, Lord, what is this? And he said, it's just a little bit of what I feel for the entire world. That's really what it is. He loves this world so much, he wants us to feel just a little bit of it because it is a great motivator. And it's continued to be for me my entire life since that moment as a 17-year-old. I believe it's a big part of why I ended up being a preacher of the word and why I'm up here this morning is because in some small way, I feel what Jesus felt when he looked out over Jerusalem. And he cared about people. He cared what was going to happen to them. And so he was going to do something about it. It has motivated many men since then. The great missionary David Livingston said he went to Africa as an explorer. But it was there on top of a a, a great vista that he looked out and he saw the smoke of a thousand fires going up from the jungles. And he realized that those thousand fires represented thousands upon thousands of souls who had never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And so David Livingston devoted the rest of his life and his great energy to reaching every last one of those tribes that he could reach. He felt such a burden that these people should hear the name of Jesus Christ. And it was in 1947 that a man named Robert Pierce, who worked for Youth for Christ, a mission to evangelize the world with the gospel, this young evangelist started towards China with only enough money in his pocket to buy a single ticket to Honolulu. And on that trip, he met a teacher named Tina. And Tina introduced him to a battered and abandoned child named White Jade. Unable to care for this child herself, she asked Pierce, look at this child. What are you going to do about her? And so Pierce gave the woman the last five dollars in his pocket. And he agreed that he would send the same amount each month to help the woman care for that child. And he kept his word. 
Every month, somehow, he didn't know where the money would come from, but somehow he came up with the $5, and he would put it in the envelope and put it in the mail for that child. Pierce eventually made it to China, where thousands made public commitments to follow Christ during four months of evangelistic meetings. And while there, Pierce, too, looked out and saw the widespread hunger, the famine that was running through the land at the time. He felt in his heart an intense compassion for these people. And he later wrote these words on the flyleaf of his Bible. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. And then dragging a movie camera across Asia, Pierce filmed what he saw. And he brought those pictures back to show the churches in North America what was happening in China. And then he asked them for money to help the children suffering there. And he showed their faces, and he begged Christians to adopt one child, just as he had done for that child in Hawaii. And then in 1950, he incorporated this personal mission into its name that it's known around the world today, World Vision. And in 1959, journalist Richard Gaham wrote this, Pierce cannot conceal his true emotions. He seems to me one of the few naturally, uncontrollably honest men that I have ever met. And Pastor Richard Halverson wrote of Pierce that he prayed more earnestly than anyone else I have ever known. It was as though his heart burned with prayer and with love for the children. And Bob Pierce's great passion for the lost masses motivated him to do great things for God, and it stemmed from a broken heart. And so today, my challenge for you as it is for myself, let us pray that God would soften and, yes, even break our hearts for the things that break his, that we would not just weep for ourselves and our own selfish ambitions, but that we would instead weep for the things that cause our Lord and Savior to weep, and that we would then be so motivated that we would do something about it, just as he gave his life so that we could be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, I give you all glory and praise that you went to the cross. And that in that moment, as you looked out over the great city of Jerusalem, even knowing that they would reject you, you did not stop your plans to go through with our great salvation that you purchased at the high cost of your own blood. Lord Jesus, I thank you that my salvation through faith in you has been secured. And now I simply pray again that as I prayed as a 17-year-old, as you prompted me, I pray this prayer for myself, and I'd be so bold as to pray it on behalf of everyone here today. Lord, would you burden us for the lost? Would you move our hearts with what moves yours? Would maybe even this week each one of us shed a tear for the things that would make you shed a tear. And then may those tears motivate us out of love to do something. By your great power that is at work within us, we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.